Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I'm pleased to have two guests, regular friends of the show, Dr. Bill Conley, Chief Technology Officer at Mercury Systems, and John Knowles, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Defense. We are going to talk about some current affairs, what's in the news, as well as the upcoming AOC 59th International Symposium and Convention. For more information on that event, registration is open and you can go to 59.crows.org to register and to take a look at the agenda. But we are going to take a look at a little bit of the theme and talk about it in terms of what is going on in the world today, particularly with Ukraine. So with that, I'd like to welcome my first guest, Dr. Bill Conley, Chief Technology Officer at Mercury Systems. Thanks, Ken. It is, uh, as always, awesome to, uh, to be here with you today and awesome to get to talk for a little bit. Well, I wanted to have you on the show. You know, we, every few episodes, we want to take a step back and look at current affairs and what's going on in the world. I wanted to have you on in part because, you know, we have great conversations about what's going on on a daily basis, but also you are the chairman of the upcoming AOC Symposium and Convention. And the theme I, I find is actually very relevant for the current global security situation, particularly Ukraine and, and China and some of the issues that we're dealing with. So I thought I'd have you on the show to talk a little bit about what is going on in these theaters within the context of obviously the upcoming symposium and the theme. So wanted to thank you, you know, for taking time to join me, you know, so just to get, you know, to give the listeners a little bit of a background here with the theme, they can go to 59.crows.org to find out more information, but the theme is the EMSO playbook. And I wanted to basically start with, you know, when you, when you look at what's going on and we can, you know, start with Ukraine, but also what's going on in the Pacific. Maneuvering to win in a new era requires, as the theme states, an EMSO playbook. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on why are we building this as a playbook or what, what, why do we need an EMSO playbook and what does that really mean from a global security perspective? No, so Ken, that, that's a, an awesome question. First off, you know, thanks, thanks for kind of the introduction and, and, you know, setting the stage in terms of, you know, where, where we're going this year with the symposium. But really, the, the kind of the playbook concept and the reason for, for baking it into how we're thinking about the symposium this year is when we look at a variety of our senior leaders across the U.S. government, they're really making sure that we're, we're prepared for whatever it is that may, you know, occur over the, uh, the next couple of years. But I'm a little bit of a football fan. And so, you know, we are rapidly approaching, obviously, the fall and therefore football season. And when you look at that, what do you do in the offseason? You train, you practice, you figure out what you want to do. But when you're ultimately out there on the field and you're no kidding in it, what do you do? You use plays from your playbook. You use things that you rehearsed. You use things that you thought about. You use things that allow you to very quickly and rapidly make decisions and go forth and execute. And so in a lot of ways, I think when we look at kind of our overall national security posture for where we are today as a nation, as a world, as a globe, it's really around that, hey, what do we have in our playbooks? 
And what are those things that we need to be ready to very quickly and rapidly do? And obviously, as an acquisition guy, it's a different question when you pose, you know, from an acquisition, you know, capability development standpoint, what are those things that we still can do before the game is over? What are those things that we can do before the game starts? And again, those are two very interesting questions that over the next few minutes with you, I look forward to exploring. But obviously, through the the overall symposium and the agenda, the group of speakers we're bringing together, I really look forward to exploring here in a couple months. You know, it's interesting because I find that through a lot of our discussions on EMSO over the years, you know, we we tend to try and hack away at the big ticket item, the big topic of conversation. But beneath that, we don't really get into much depth into what we really have across, you know, the services, capabilities, techniques, and so forth, training. We really don't drill down to that level as much on a regular basis, you know, when we engage our leaders and and we kind of get distracted with kind of the bright, shiny object. Um, And so it was really kind of interesting to hear that, you know, like I like your football analogy, although from a Washington, D.C. perspective, the playbook is rarely followed well or executed well on, on, on a regular basis. But um, you, you being from New England, maybe it's a little bit different. But, you know, we, you know, when we can I, I have to stop you there. I am not from New England. I'm a Hoosier by birth and therefore um, a, a fan of a certain team, which is uh, located in the greater Indianapolis area. But in uh, respect to uh, our friends up in the Baltimore area, I'm not going to name the team. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't want to lose any listeners due to our uh, football allegiances here. Well, I, I think I just did with the Washington, but I, I, you know, we'll survive. But, you know, with the, with the playbook concept, I mean, if, you know, this, this is something that I think that is long overdue because we've been so focused on domain issues and, you know, leadership issues, but, you know, governance, and, and these are still important. But if we do that and ignore some of these other deep playbook concepts, uh, we're not going to be prepared to, to, to win and, and maneuver. So, you know, with that, how do we have to pivot away to kind of make sure that we are kind of getting into that playbook, reading it chapter by chapter or play by play to get to know it better? The first thing that I would actually offer is, is oftentimes that you look at, you know, what do we want to talk about when we get together? And we, we want to talk about strategy. You know, we want to talk and learn, you know, as a, as a group, as a team, you know, everyone coming together, you know, what, what happened in the Pentagon over the last three months, you know, what is there that's happening on Capitol Hill? What are these things that are going to, you know, be driving and influencing where everything goes? There's a secondary part of it though. And, and a lot of what I'm actually about to share, I, I learned through reading Lutwak back, uh, you know, my first year or so in the Pentagon. But the reality is that everything that we have in terms of our, our weapon systems that are available to us today. And so be that an MSO, you know, weapon system or any other you know, system out there that the DOD is building is really underpinned by the technology. But the interesting question is, how does that technology get used? That's really the tactical layer of, you know, how we go through, how we train soldiers, how we train, you know, airmen, Marines, uh, you know, guardians, and how do we want to go out and actually execute that? Ultimately, that gets aggregated into operational planning. And Ludwig very appropriately actually breaks strategy into two separate pieces. And so the highest level is grand strategy. And that's kind of that Clausewitz, you know, war is the continuation of politics by other means. And fundamentally, wars are started or end largely for political reasons. But underneath that and connecting that grand strategy to the operational side is theater strategy. You know, and so perhaps iconically, you know, look at, uh, you know, the Iraqi invasion into Kuwait and the, you know, kind of the response that occurred. How do you actually plan for that theater level conflict three decades ago? Well, what does it mean to do theater level planning today? And how do we do that theater level strategy to make sure that we're actually accomplishing that which we want to set out to do? And so in a lot of ways, I think what we're going to hear about this year through the symposium is not just about the technology or not just just about the strategy, 
but it's how do those connect? And so how do we think vertically across that chart? How do we think about how we allow technology and the innovations there to enable a tactical operator to actually change the system when they need to, when they want to, to meet what they need it to do? How do we allow the operational planner to change those tactics on the fly? And how do we bring that information forward to someone that's responsible for the theater in a way that they can go ahead and make the right decision such that ultimately our national objectives with grand strategy, we actually can go forth and achieve. When we uh, chose the theme, AOC chose the theme in, in working with you, uh, and I can't remember the ac- actual timeline, but I'm fairly certain it was before Russia invaded Ukraine. And so in keeping with your idea of the you know, theater strategy, I think we're at about the six-month mark now of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What have you seen or what have you learned from that conflict that informs kind of this informs or reinforces this theme of the playbook and this need to think of it vertically between operations and strategy? So, I mean, the technology fundamentally that is out there, the vast majority of technology is globally available, you know, and, and not to undercut the ITAR and the EAR and et cetera, and the things that prevent the proliferation of technology globally, but a lot of the underpinning foundational technology is out there and truly is globally available. And the other thing that becomes really interesting, I think, when we look at, you know, what have we learned over the last six months is, you know, if you go every few decades, war tends to either favor an offensive force or a defensive force. And so in that, you know, going into World War I, everybody believed that, you know, the war would end up happening very quickly and would come to a, you know, in comparison, a very rapid end. Ultimately, everybody near immediately got bogged down in the trench because the advent of the machine gun and artillery really ended up favoring the defense in a way that none of the war games prior to that and kind of how they had played out really expected. And so it became a very different conflict than I think any of the war games and what was anticipated. Similarly today, I think what we're seeing uh, with, you know, with the conflict, with the war, with Russia's invasion into Ukraine is, you know, what is the favor that goes to the offense? What is the favor that goes to the defense? And I think with that in mind, you know, terrain, fundamentally, all wars are really fought, you know, in in somebody's backyard, literally, in this case, in the Ukrainian backyard. But at the same time, what are all of the different things that they have available that they can pull out? And so if I look personally at, you know, my own home, how many smart devices have we installed just to make life easier, nicer, you know, more enjoyable, et cetera? But what does it mean when you live in a world where everybody has cameras, you know, scattered across their yard? If you want to be able to go ahead and actually provide a, you know, ability to detect adversary forces that are moving, what does it mean when you have, you know, proliferated UAV technology in terms of quadcopters that are capable of operating at militarily relevant ranges, but simultaneously allowing you to either hide behind a building terrain, you know, otherwise obfuscate yourself from any sort of line of sight weapon becomes a very interesting, but a very different conflict. And so with that in mind, when we think about kind of that industrial age mentality of it's the number of tanks that I have and the number of soldiers that I have, it plays out very differently when you think about all of the different technology, which is now blending into the battlefield. Many of those things were never intended or designed to be used in a military conflict, but they're immediately and appropriately applicable in a way that candidly, I don't think was foreseen. And at the same time, you know, it's, it's interesting, the role of natural resources you know, the role of logistics, the vulnerability that you have if you don't project, you know, don't protect your logistics in your flank. You know, there's a bunch of things that I think would look, you know, very familiar to uh, to Clausewitz, if not even farther back in terms of, you know, military strategic thinkers. And so not every lesson is a new one, but there are definitely some things that are new and exciting that we have seen. So in thinking about, some, you know, some of the sessions that you know, we're going to be speaking about, you know, just looking through the agenda here and, you know, there's a lot of 
familiar topics that many of our attendees may have, you know, hear about in, in, in various fora over the years, such as JADC2 and training and so forth. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, taking those lessons from Ukraine, talk, looking at the role of technology, uh, and then, you know, obviously expanding it into what the implications are from a global perspective, because obviously other peer competitors like China are watching us and making adjustments and, and, and figuring things out. What went into thinking about here are the top plays in the, that we have to address? I mean, clearly a playbook is going to be a lot more than seven plays or seven sessions. Talk a little bit about the prioritization of those and, and how that plays out. And then also, what did you have to leave out that you would like to have if you had an extra day? So uh, a great question uh, there, Ken. So the, the first thing that I would offer that I think is really interesting that we're going to spend a fair amount of time on is really around the role of space. And if you actually look at the world today with U.S. Space Force, you know, having just turned over, a little bit over one year old, uh, the last time I went looking, I believe they have two actual astronauts in the entire U.S. Space Force. What that practically means, though, is that every other Guardian, the way that they execute their mission is in, through, and because of the electromagnetic spectrum. But simultaneously, if we put that in the context of, you know, what, what did we see on, you know, kind of the first night as Russia crossed the border into Ukraine, is we actually saw them going after military command and control namely, you know, through Biosat. And so I think the uh, the exact quote that Dave Tremper used, you know, talking, uh, you know, not too far after in terms of SpaceX and the ability of, you know, the Ukrainian forces to then start using Starlink to be able to do it, but also the way that SpaceX was able to do a software update that actually mitigated a lot of the non-kinetic effects, the jamming that the Russian forces were trying to do against it, is the role of space, even if we don't think of Russia, and in particular Ukraine, as this, you know, dominant, you know, force that's in space, they're still using it. Um, and they're using it in ways that's really critical for their command and control, but that blending of what's happening with the commercial sector with commercially available services into being militarily important, I think is a very interesting aspect to, uh, to go ahead and think about. Uh, the role of AI, artificial intelligence, that ability to respond quickly. Uh, there are decisions that we intrinsically have to make faster than humans are really capable of making them well. And so it's one thing, you know, most we, the majority of folks that, uh, that show up to the symposium somewhere along the way, you know, back in the day, saw the movie Terminator, either in childhood, you know, young adulthood, or, you know, because their parents were watching it, you know, for a throwback to a, uh, to a different decade. But when we think about that, right, there's, there's kind of this debate around what is the right way to use AI. Um, but when we think about AI and machine learning, and we think about the electromagnetic spectrum, and we think about platform self-protection, if my consequence of doing nothing is that I end up getting shot down in the platform that I'm in, that aircraft on that given day. And the consequence, if I jam the wrong signal, is that somebody else's device doesn't work very well for a minute. Um, you know, I think that we're making the right decision. In comparison, it's very different when you talk about weapons release, you know, and things that have a lethal and permanent consequence. But intrinsically, you know, with, with our jamming systems, when you turn off the jammer, they generally don't leave anything behind or any sort of permanent damage. The directed energy side, that's, uh, that's obviously different for what that one means. The other one that I think is really important that we're going to spend some time on is, is the role of unmanned, uncrewed, right? We're, we're beginning to see both of those terms used kind of interchangeably now to describe it. But when we look at, you know, what is the role in the world, you know, going into the future, be it UUVs operating somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, being at UAVs operating over Ukrainian airspace or in proximity, uh, the role of attributable or unmanned or ideally, you know, even better yet, completely expendable platforms is a very different risk calculus for how do you want to use those systems and what do you hope to go and accomplish with those systems? It becomes really interesting. And then 
Lastly, obviously, the, the 5G to 6G, the next G ecosystem continues to evolve. And so one that I know I, I spoke about on stage, I think three years ago, you know, was the relative ratio of commercial investment going into programs and capabilities versus, uh, you know, DOD unique dollars. And so what are those things that we want to be able to leverage, understand and figure out what parts we want to bring over and appropriately and applicably, you know, make part of our defense ecosystem? So with that in mind, you know, I, I think it's going to be a blast. What are some of the things I wish we could have spent more time on? So specifically, we're actually not doing a dedicated session on either Ukraine or Russia. That was a very intentional decision. You know, there's it's very hard to figure out what months in advance is really going to be germane. Um, we've in the past have had a lot of very China centric sessions in terms of how we thought and, you know, what is there that they are doing? What are the things that they're developing? Um, and similarly, you know, we, we kind of looked and said, you know, hey, the reality is the lessons that we're learning in terms of what happened after Russia invaded Ukraine, they're just going to show up throughout the entirety of the symposium. And to believe that we can cover those only in one session and not touch on them in the rest didn't make a lot of sense. And then lastly, you know, for the, the current administration, what are their priorities? What are the things that they really want to double down, focus on? And so when we look at the keynote speakers, I'm very excited about what we have there as well. With the lack of sessions on, on China and Russia, I think you're right. You know, sometimes if you have dedicated sessions on one thing, you forget about, you, you don't think about them in the other uh, sessions or the other opportunities, topics that are covered. I do expect, you know, we'll hear plenty on Russia and Ukraine throughout the three days. One other topic, and I, you kind of bringing this into maybe a little bit more of the uh, Pacific theater and, and, you know, the competition that we have with China. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, supply chain and microelectronics. You know, we'll, we'll cover that obviously in the in the session as well. I'm going to have John Knowles on uh, here shortly. Um, and, 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 you know, Congress just passed the CHIPS Act. You know, there's been a lot of movement in the administration, you know, to, to help out the supply chain. This is a very important topic to discuss, you know, when we talk about, you know, dependencies, both domestic and military dependencies on the supply chain. What are your thoughts on where we're at right now in light of chips and so forth? It's a really exciting time for, for where we are right now, right? And so obviously the, the CHIPS Act was rolled into the NDAA a year and change ago. But really paramount you know, and important this year is it finally got funded. And so having the appropriated funds to go with it, the $52 billion is a you know, reasonably a once in a generation, perhaps a you know, once in a lifetime opportunity for us to really make sure that we, we do this and we do it right. And so the, the flip side and maybe the other side of that coin is it's also not going to be something that occurs, you know, year over year, like a defense appropriation, you know, bill and an NDAA. And so, you know, does it show up a little bit late? Does it show up on time? Yeah, we, we generally, you know, for my career, we've always had CRs. That's okay, but there always is funding. And so the question is, with a one-time influx of capital, with that one-time investment going in, what are the things we need and we must accomplish over the next five years? to make sure that we get it right. It's actually a panel that, that I'm really excited about and really proud that we were able to, you know, make sure it fit logically into the agenda. You know, typically at these events, you know, we talk about the requirements, we talk about the capabilities, we talk about what's going on in the world, and we generally don't think up and down our supply chain, what allows us to make all of those different things happen. And obviously microelectronics for everything that we do in the MSO space, it's foundational for all of us. And so what's happening, but better yet, what's going to change over the next couple of years? And what are those changes that we already can see on the horizon, I think is really important. And then lastly, what I would finish with on the CHIPS Act, and, and just to encourage everyone to think about, is it's not just about having the big groundbreaking ceremony for the fab and the, the fab fabs that we're going to build 
in terms of what we do with the CHIPS Act money is absolutely critical and is going to be a valuable and necessary step forward. If we only address the FABs, however, we aren't actually holistically solving the problem that we need to solve. There's a whole bunch of other things that are out there. When you look at you know, resiliency in the supply chain side, and you roll back a couple of decades, the interruption of silicon wafers coming out of Japan set up a tremendous ripple that went across the entire ecosystem. And so today, what is happening with substrates, with you know, all of the different semiconductors and the wafers and the processes that you have to do to make a device work, where are the design tools coming from? Be that either the actual fabrication tools or the electronic design tools that are used to go through and do that. So I think there's a really exciting uh, discussion that we're going to have around that. Hopefully also we increase the diversity of the audience that we have, because this is not something that we typically talk about at the annual symposium. But I think this year in particular is critical that we talk about. And I hope that we continue that into the future, because I think the supply chain, we've learned a lot over the last couple of years of COVID. This one isn't going away. And I think that's one of the great things about the playbook concept, because if, if, if you go through any playbook, it's not just isolated plays or things that you do, they're, they're all connected and, and they all have a, a particular flow that you want to follow, you know, to keep the football analogy, you know, you want to run a certain set of plays to kind of set you up for the next set of plays. And, and having that type of outlook for MSO, I think is, has quite frankly been lacking in many of our discussions over the years. And, and it's good to kind of turn the corner and, and start to look at it in that direction. Uh, just one last question though, you know, we talk not just with the symposium, but just you know generally you know through the podcast and other venues and, and and initiatives. You know we engage a lot with senior leaders in in DoD and industry. They'll they'll be at the show. They'll be at other events uh, over the course of the fall. What do you want DoD leadership, military leadership, and industry leadership to get out of this conference? That is a great question, right? And and so the the first thing that I would offer up is you know let's let's keep in mind you know. What, what, is, what are the things that we share in common and what are the things that we view differently? You know, and so wrapped up in that, I think, is, you know, in the role that I am in today, I would rather see we, you know, us at Mercury lose to one of our competitors than ever see our nation lose in any sort of conflict that it ever ends up in. And so with that in mind, you know, what are those things that we all need to go do that we can do together that we are intrinsically all the way behind? The second one that I would offer is, you know, kind of the, the three pillars of, um, of overall, you know, running a program. You have cost schedule performance. The joke is you get to pick two. In many programs, what you're really doing is picking one. In many cases, I think over the last couple of decades, we have largely been focused around the cost of those major programs. And there's a few examples like, you know, the counter RCIED fight where it was all hands on deck, solve this problem and get a capability that, uh, that you know, provides the needed capability as quickly as you can. But what I really think in many ways we're seeing today is a pivot in even the biggest of programs that are becoming much more focused on schedule performance. And the costs are, eh, you know, let's, let's make sure we do the right thing, but let's get it done in a timely fashion. And so with that in mind, I think there's a substantial pivot, which is occurring there. And then lastly, I think the part that'll be interesting is, is getting people to expand their minds a little bit around, you know, hey, when, when you look inside of the, uh, the program manager series and you know, let's talk about directed energy. Let's not just talk about Army, Navy, and, uh, you know, Air Force programs. And don't get me wrong, we're talking about the Army programs, and we're talking about the Navy programs, and we're talking about the Air Force programs. But let's also, you know, let's talk about the directed energy systems. Let's talk about space and, you know, countering space-based technologies. Let's talk about, you know, how China is really thinking about their investments and where they're shaping their strategy in that area. But what are the vulnerabilities? Every time you do something, every system that I have ever worked on in my career, there's some vulnerability to it. 
I'm going to wager for anyone globally building weapon systems, all of them have a vulnerability, all of them have a weak underbelly. Let's start thinking about how we attack those where they're weakest, not where they're strongest. And I think that gives us a very nice strategy that we can carry forward. And so be that, you know, for senior leaders in industry, for senior leaders in the Pentagon, but, but you know, candidly for all of us, um, a couple of things that I hope we all walk away with. Well, thank you, Dr. Connolly, for coming back on the show to talk a little bit about the symposium, about what's going on around the world, and, and just how the theme of this year's symposium relates to kind of how we are approaching global security. We'd like to have you back on the show every few months, obviously, just to kind of talk about what's going on. It's always great to hear from you, and uh, thank you for your time. Thanks, Ken. As, as always, it is great being with you, and I look forward to seeing you and many other you know good uh, friends and colleagues uh, you know here at the symposium pretty soon. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can 
Connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Welcome back. I am pleased to introduce my next guest, John Knowles. He is the editor-in-chief of the JED magazine, the AOC's official publication. John, it's always great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back, Ken. We just got done uh, talking to Dr. Conley, and I wanted to have you on just to have an episode where we're talking a little bit about current events. And so I wanted to you know, basically start off with just getting your thoughts on kind of what are you looking at at the at the 10,000 foot level, 30,000 foot level? What do you what is on your mind right now as you look at what is going on from a global security perspective, Russia, Ukraine, China, as well as, you know, what's going on here domestically with Congress? It seems like in the geopolitical sphere, the world is becoming less stable, more competitors instead of the past 25, 30 years where the U.S. was a dominant player. You're obviously seeing Russia, at least militarily, asserting itself, and you're seeing China economically asserting itself and building its military. And so the global security sort of system out there has more players in it at the top level than it has for a long time, and that's bringing at the very least, competition um, for the U.S., uh, if not leading toward potential conflict. So you're just seeing, and, and a lot of that's going to be around the electromagnetic spectrum. Now, when we talk about competition, and we've heard a lot about great power competition and this kind of this new dynamic that we're starting to pay attention to. Is it a matter of that competition is picking up or that we're realizing that we've been approaching some of this maybe wrong for for decades and we have to kind of quickly adapt to an environment that isn't conducive to the way that we're used to operating i think it's kind of both actually i think that when the u.s created its offensive battle network in the cold war toward the last couple decades of the cold war we did it the first time and the first the first person to do it or the first country to do it has to work it out and work out all the kinks and all the followers china Russia, other countries that can go out and, and replicate that, they can do that much quicker just because it's already been done and they know what they're looking to do. So their access to commercial technologies and things that they want to leverage, to they, they, can, they can make it happen a lot faster. They may tailor it to their own particular um, nuance, way they want to operate depending on their geopolitical strategy. So there is definitely a sense of, I'll call it convergence, but technological competitors that are, that are not far behind, again, Russia, China, but even Iran, some other countries that have that have uh, been very successful at building network centric architectures and, and thinking about precision guided munitions and, and, and everything that we've done, dependence on space, things like that. So you have that competition happening. And at the same time, the U.S. had 30 years of fairly, um, how can I put it, Certainly everything that happened in the 90s with Serbia and things like that challenged our air power, but not in a way that was really causing any systemic changes for us. And then Iraq and Afghanistan really were very permissive environments for us, um, at least in the air. The ground fight was more of an electromagnetic knife fight in some ways with RCIDs and things like that. But it, they didn't create challenges, but not systemic challenges where we really said we have to elevate electromagnetic warfare in a ma major way. We, we did learn some of those lessons. We've done electromagnetic superiority uh, strategy 
electromagnetic spectrum supportive strategy. Uh, we've done all those things, but I just, my, my sense right now is I'm, I'm waiting to see what takes. I'm waiting to see how the implementation plan really rolls out and if it really, really affects the system or if we are somewhere between where we want it to be in terms of implementing change and getting some of the structural changes in organizations and leadership that we wanted in our community that we think we need to really be able to, to meet the challenges of the 21st century. We're somewhere between that and the way we used to do things. <laughs> I don't think we really achieved our vision, but I don't think we're back where we were in, say, 2005. I wanted to ask you about Ukraine, but since you brought up the strategy real quick and the implementation plan, I've, you know, it's just <laughs> natural for me. I want to pull that thread a little bit. Without getting too much into it, what do you need to see here in the next year or so from DOD to, to, to give you the, the general, the, the, the confidence that, okay, yeah, we've, we figured it out in terms of, you know, being able to take strategy and put it into to practice. DOD hasn't done a good job at this over the decades. So what do you need to see over the next months or year that you're saying, okay, we figured it out and you feel good about the the direction this implementation plan is going? I think the first thing, and I think it was a, it was a, I won't say a mistake, but I wouldn't have done it this way myself. They rolled out the implementation plan, but they made most of it classified. That really was strange that the DOD didn't declassify or make a, a better a more robust, unclassified version of this strategy, implementation plan at least. But things like training, things that you really want to communicate to the community, it's amazing that that so much of it was classified. And that, I think, that the House has really done a good job of, of asking, like, why do we have an unclassified, you know, the House Armed Services Committee, NDAA. Oftentimes you would have the, you know, if you have a classified report of some sort, there is some unclassified portion, executive summary, something to go along with it to at least give you, gives you an idea of what are the, the parameters within the classified material. And they did not, as, as far as I know, they don't have any of that. So you're right. I mean, having it all classified or so much of it classified, I understand the reasoning, but it's also very easy then to not keep track of what's going on. Yeah. I just think to make the whole thing classified, whereas certain aspects are obviously technology, things like that, you want to make sure that that's, you're not revealing too much there. But then there's a- other aspects that I think shouldn't, you know, or, or traditionally aren't classified training, some of those areas, uh, personnel development, things like that. And so that strategy was very wide ranging across .mil PF. And, and I can see the technology piece and some, some of those, but there's some others I just thought was interesting. But the other, the other part of the, the study that I thought fell, when we went into the when, when our community went into this starting in like, say, 2010 to 2015, 16, 17, we really had, you know, based on the capabilities-based assessment that the Joint EW Center had done in 2006 or 2008, and, and some of the subsequent research and studies that they'd done in the DOD, they really honed in on two major issues for electromagnetic spectrum strategy. One was leadership, and the other was organization. And those two parts don't seem very as robust as they could be in the implementation strategy. They've done they've they've really tried to work with the organizations they have and not create new ones. And I understand I've heard the rationale for that from from General Heighton, but at the same time it doesn't answer that. I just feel like the implementation strategy doesn't necessarily answer those two big questions of of organization and leadership. They made moves there, but I just question whether it's going to be enough for what we need to do in 21st century warfare. If they've been persistent gaps for years, and you know, I think the CBA was a 2008, but even before then, you know, there, there was, since the early 2000s, I mean, there was 
clearly conversations on this front from Congress and, and EW Working Group and so forth. So, you know, to have that be kind of a persistent gap, um, it does beg the question of whether or not enough is being done. So it'll be interesting to see over the next year if, you know, there 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 is there could be a lot of things going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of, and we just kind of have to wait to see. But uh, it'll be an interesting, uh, interesting path to follow for them. That loops back to the classification of the. So there may be more going on, but again, my question is: is like, why would you need to really classify organization and leadership, you know, or something like that? You know, I think to you know to put another plug into the Congressional EW Working Group, I think that's one of the the great things about. There was an amendment in the uh, House NDAA sponsored by Congressman Rick Larson and Congressman Don Bacon. Talking about you know oversight of MSO and the strategy and implementation plan and the need to keep Congress informed and hopefully you know amendments like that and other efforts will even even if from our perspective we don't get those questions answered you know some of you know Congress will be able to get that information be able to keep track and and and, and there'll be enough leadership involved in those decisions to kind of keep everyone moving forward. So I wanted to move on to you know just. Some current affairs here with, you know, we're about the six month mark here of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, just to, today, it was announced that, you know, President Biden signed about a $2.98 billion weapons package to provide to Ukraine. And so clearly, obviously, there's still a long way to go in this conflict. And, you know, there's really no end in sight. But, with this latest, uh, and and quite frankly, I think it's the largest tranche of security assistance and technology assistance to, to Ukraine, what are you seeing as, you know, what, what are your thoughts on what's going on over there from an EW perspective, and what does this weapons package mean for those issues? Well, I think that the conflict is Ukraine has successfully defended, stopped the invasion for the most part in terms of they're not losing much ground. It's very, like, some of the salients are getting flattened out on the front lines. And so you're seeing artillery. The Russians have obviously, uh, they're relying on artillery to soften Ukrainian defenses. But at the same time, and, and so it looks like an artillery, like a World War II artillery battle or something like that in one aspect. But another aspect where Ukraine has really been able to defend its territory, I won't say necessarily regain it yet, uh, but defend it is things like the Harpoon missile, the Harpoon missiles that the U.S. gave and their own variation of their anti-ship cruise missiles that they've been using to great effect. That has really stopped Russia from, from advancing in the south toward Odessa and, and cutting that whole southern uh, flank of, of Ukraine off from um, the rest of the country. So you're seeing, I think, this electromagnetic competition starting to scale up on the Ukrainian side, certainly, um, with the weapons, the package that they just got, and, and some of the weapons in the recent packages right before it. So HARM, high-speed anti-radiation missiles, going after radars. They've actually found a way to integrate those onto their MiGs, which is amazing. First that I know of that, uh, that integration on the MiG. And this package, they've got air defense radars and other radars, counter-UAS systems, things like that. And so they're really thinking about competing in the electromagnetic spectrum with Russian forces um, and, and really being able to blunt the Russia's, certainly their, their ISR and things like that that they use for artillery spotting. So their artillery is going to be less accurate and less effective. So again, it's sort of this, this electromagnetic competition. I think Ukraine right now is getting a lot of those, a lot of those weapons that are, that are sensors or 
or countermeasures and certainly communications, those things, like this fight is moving more and more into the electromagnetic spectrum, partly because, again, the weapons they're getting are very long range. And to have long range weapons, you need long range sensors and long range, longer range communications that are wider bandwidth and things like that. And so the West is, is helping to rearm Ukraine. And amazingly, I think that the, what's really amazing about Ukraine is they've been able to train up on this so fast and adapt to, they've jumped from basically Soviet era weapons to Western weapon systems with amazing efficiency, amazingly quick, and, and use them very effectively. Like that's that's really hard to do with an army is to retrain it like that. But I think the Ukrainians, you know, really have surprised everyone again <laughs> with their ability to um, to make those adaptations. You know, there are a number of articles out there in the news talking about kind of lessons learned or what have we learned from the conflict and so forth. And a lot of them at some point in the articles that are out there, you know, they'll mention the role of unmanned aerial systems, drones and so forth and and how and, – and the, and the necessity or the ability to counter them is kind of reshaping how we think, you know, 21st century warfare – there's a lot that goes into unmanned, uncrewed systems that has a lot to do with electromagnetic warfare. It's a it's a big part of our community here moving forward. What are your thoughts on how Ukraine and what's going on in Russian Ukraine and how that's shaping how we think about drones, uncrewed systems, and so forth and counter operations? Yeah, I mean, when you think about I just as you're saying that, I was thinking about really the one of the key pieces, for example, in the competition with the drones is the Russians are trying to obviously shoot down as many Ukrainian drones as they can. They've got to use sensors for that. And how many passive sensors do they have to do that? I don't know. Even if they have the passive sensors, they're going to have to communicate to some, some sort of countermeasure unless the countermeasure is right there. But what's interesting is that there is that, that the Ukrainians, probably with the help of NATO forces, they, you know, if there's an emitter on the Russian side of the line, they're going to get pinpointed, identified, pinpointed, and probably targeted with something like uh, some of the artillery uh, or, or rocket systems. And so, so you think about that, HIMARS and things like that. You think about you're going to influence the Russians' willingness to to emit, to turn on their air defense systems, or even just their their surveillance radars. And so the, the Ukrainians have been able to effectively use their drones, certainly in in very precision attacks in like Crimea and places like that recently. Um, but if you look at the footage, social media and things like that, they, they've been using these drones for a while. They're actually pretty skilled in, you know, dropping bombs directly off the drones, you know, vertically down. They can hit something pretty pretty small. And so so it's amazing that the, the Russian forces just don't have EW blended in across the force. So they don't really have, they're very vulnerable to the drones across a, a, a wide front because they just don't have enough. They haven't pushed EW down to the small units with enough equipment. So I think if I were a Western army, I would take note of that. Having a small number of maybe somewhat sophisticated systems isn't necessarily as effective as having pushed EW down into your small units and equipping them to deal with, with this. Because I don't know how, I think their counter UAS for Russia is not as integrated into the force as they probably would like right now with all the drone attacks happening. We're right now here at the end of August, uh, you know, Labor Day is coming up. And Congress comes back into session from an, uh, their extended August district work period recess. It's been a busy summer with Congress. Uh, you know, they did a lot of work on the defense bills. I had uh, Madison and Katie from Forza DC on the last episode of here from the Crow's Nest uh, talking about 
some some of the provisions, but I wanted to get your perspective because you follow this as well, both from an EW perspective of what's in the NDA, but what uh, what did you learn from this process? You know, the House passed the NDA, but all the both the Senate version of the NDA as well as the appropriations bills are out there, at least in text form, so that we can start to see how this process is going to wrap up over in the fall, probably in December. What are some of your thoughts on what you learned and saw from that process? I feel like it's interesting. There seems to be less concern right now, I think, from Congress on MSO policy. And I, I shouldn't say it that way. Let me, let me rephrase that because that's probably not fair. They're in a, in a watch and wait mode on a lot of MSO policy. So there's, they're waiting for the implementation plan to really roll out more. I'm, I'm curious to how, as to how much insight Congress is going to have on that until there's some more reports that they're calling for in some of the legislation that they're putting out there. So I think Congress is 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 kind of, I won't say in that watch and wait mode, I guess is the best way to characterize it on that. That said, they're definitely feel comfortable with things like the the growler squadrons that you know the, the expeditionary squadrons are weighing in on that. They're weighing in on issues that are force structure issues that Certainly with radar and things like that too. It's, you know, there's just a lot of. It's a very, in many ways, the NDA is doing the, the bills look like they normally do in in many ways in terms of specific programs and, and guidance and things like that. So I feel like the big thing that Congress has been chewing on with MSO over the past few years, which is policy, which is you know looking at who's going to be the senior designated official and things like that. I feel like that's something that. They're waiting to see how the implementation plan comes through. And then they're kind of just doing their normal, you know, programmatic looks at things like one of the things I thought that was interesting was they did weigh in on the next-gen jammer high band program and looking at maybe instead of having a full-on separate pod for that, maybe using the mid-band pod and putting the high band capability into there. And uh, and the next-gen jammer low band obviously is getting recompeted or rewarded, I should say. Um, and so that's a that's a big development. So Congress is, I think, providing good oversight. They seem very fluent in a lot of the programs, especially the professional staffs. And so I think the big piece that we, you and I discuss a lot is the policy piece. And I think that's just kind of not off their radar, but but definitely something that they're just waiting to see how these changes that came about last year with the uh, implementation plan, the strategy and things like that, how those are going to manifest themselves. One other uh topic, you know, obviously Congress has dealt with a lot over the last year was the uh, microelectronic supply chain, the CHIPS Act. And then, of course, now they're funding it. And, you know, this has been a, a major initiative of, of Congress and the administration to get this done. And, and, and uh, you know, I applaud all the parties to recognizing the importance of that. And, and there's a lot of implications for that in terms of competition with, you know, China and in and, and the Pacific and and, and uh other peer competitors, but also the implications for how in both military and domestic dependency on microelectronics. So I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that as well. Uh, what are you, how are you seeing that issue develop and where do you see it going in the next couple months? I think I think of the microelectronics, um, it's important to point out, I think that a lot of our microelectronics strategy and policy for the DOD is, is very sound. It's something that they've always been focused on uh, and, and so it's it's pretty good. There are gaps that have opened up, especially in the semiconductor area, fabrication, where TSMC and Samsung have a massive share of that. And that's obviously offshore production. 
in the COVID, the pandemic obviously exposed weaknesses in the supply chain for chip manufacturing. And so that woke everyone up. The DOD, I feel, has is a beneficiary of CHIPS, CHIPS Act, CHIPS and Science Act, um, because it, it it's a it's a, an act that CHIPS Act is much wider, obviously, than DOD's needs. It's a, it's a national strategy dealing with supply chains across the commercial telecoms, all those markets, as well as defense. So defense on its own isn't a big enough customer anymore to, to drive something like the CHIPS Act or, or to drive that kind of policy. So they benefit from that. Um, and they certainly, you know, they're not, they're not, they're, they're cheerleading it, obviously. They think it's great. And I do too. I think it's good for the DOD. And, and then beyond that, they're looking, I think, the DARPA's ERI program, uh, Electronics Resurgence Initiative, they're really looking at next generation microelectronics. And again, that's where the DOD and the US has done a good job of anticipating what's next and really investing in those areas that the commercial market isn't really necessarily gonna gonna drive into to, to terms of performance or or whatever that the DOD, where the DOD needs technology. So I I think that, that Congress is again doing a good job at being on top of it. And I think the big lesson from the semiconductor market is there are just going to be parts of it that you just need more security. If you think about how semiconductor manufacturing moved offshore, it was basically a byproduct of a 30-year strategy toward globalization and offshoring things that we could. And that has vulnerabilities that we didn't have to worry about until, again, the thing that really, it wasn't a war that turned off that chip supply chain. It was COVID. It was, it was a pandemic. But that was a real wake-up call that, hey, we may want to reshore a lot more. We use a lot of chips in our systems, uh, not just in defense, but across the automotive, all these areas that are just just coming into maturity with um, sensors and, and other chips, uh, chip-using uh, systems. And so I think, again, we were lucky, I think, in a way, to learn that lesson in 2020, 2021, and probably uh, didn't have a military conflict that shut off our supply chain, because I think then we would really react um, we would make decisions we didn't necessarily want to make from a national security standpoint. So this hopefully will sort of write the balance and fill some of those gaps in our microelectronics strategy. And as Dr. Connolly was saying in, in the previous segment, you know, and the, the investment, I think it, it was $52 billion, uh, something somewhere around there, you know, it's it's kind of a once in a generation. And so it's, it's you know, not, not only is the policy there, but the funding is there and coming along and Certainly, it doesn't immediately solve everything, but at least it shows some sort of unity of effort and awareness. For once, it's good to see something done kind of almost preemptively before, you know, crisis hits. So, so you know, hats off to everyone involved in that. So thank you, John. That, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you for taking time, joining me. Hope to have you back on the show here in a few weeks to talk a little bit more about what's going on in current affairs around the world. And uh, just appreciate your time. Thanks, Ken. Look forward to it. Well, that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Bill Conley from Mercury Systems and John Knowles from the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please feel free to share your thoughts and recommendations. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. 
They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.